Until Boris Johnson is being challenged to bring the Australian trade deal before MSPs and allow them to vote on it in the Scottish Parliament. The challenge has been laid down by Scotland's First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon. So far, Downing Street has refused to do so, despite growing concerns from farmers and crofters across the country. First Minister admits failure in aspects of Scotland's drugs policy. She says the government did not get everything right in the pandemic. And it's a summer of discontent as strikes are signalled nationwide. From Caledonia Media, I'm Charles Fletcher with Scotland's favourite political show, The Week in Hollywood. So yes, lessons to learn, uh, but I want to pay tribute uh, to everybody in National Services Scotland and in health boards across the country who worked so hard to make sure that at no point Scotland ran out of PPE. Just when you thought it was safe to get back into the water, the cruel coronavirus chronicles another setback for the nation. The First Minister Nicola Sturgeon is retaining her cautious approach and postponing any further easing of restrictions into mid-July. The UK government is getting thumped over its lack of urgency in closing British borders to travellers from the Indian subcontinent. That's where the Delta variant of Covid originated and that's the largest strain currently clamping its grip on Scotland. Here's the First Minister at her briefing to Parliament. In short, we are hopeful that vaccination is changing the game in our fight against this virus and perhaps in a very fundamental way. But the emerging evidence uh, still does need close analysis. And more fundamentally, and perhaps this is the most fundamental point of all today, we do need time to get more people vaccinated with both doses. In the race between the virus and vaccines that we've spoken about often, we are increasingly confident that vaccines will win that race. But we mustn't allow the virus to get too far ahead of it. The vaccination programme is going exceptionally well. It is being rolled out just as quickly as supplies allow. But there is still a significant proportion of the population that isn't yet fully vaccinated with two doses. And to be blunt, that remains our biggest vulnerability at this stage. And it is quite a significant vulnerability when cases are rising at the pace they are. So we need to buy ourselves sufficient time for the vaccination to get ahead and to stay ahead of the virus, and that is the reason for caution to be exercised at this juncture. Of course, these issues are also being weighed up by the UK government and by the other governments uh, across uh, the UK. Um, and of course, the UK government just yesterday announced a four-week delay to its plans for lifting COVID restrictions in England. The Scottish government too will continue to adopt a cautious approach. Um, I've already confirmed uh, today that no changes will be made this week to the levels that apply in any part of the country. Our next full scheduled review of the protection levels uh, will take place next week and this will consider where, whether any changes are possible from the 28th of June onwards, uh, the date when we had hoped we would see the whole country move down to level zero. Now, I will confirm our decision uh, to Parliament uh, next week following 
uh, that review. However, given the current situation and the need to get more people fully vaccinated before we ease up further, it is reasonable, I think, to indicate now uh, that it is unlikely that any part of the country will move down a level uh, from the 28th of June. Instead, it is more likely that we will opt to maintain restrictions for a further three weeks from the 28th of June and use that time to vaccinate with both doses as many more people as possible. Uh, doing that will give us uh, the best chance uh, later in July of getting back on track and restoring the much greater normality that we all crave. Uh, to that end, we will also do three other things next week, and I'll report on all of this uh, this time next week when I stand here uh, to give uh, a statement. Uh, if our decision is to retain current levels uh, for a further three weeks, and we have to go through the proper process to arrive at that decision, but if that is the decision, we will consider whether any minor changes are possible. I am very aware that as restrictions have eased, perceived anomalies have arisen, and I understand how frustrating uh, those can be even though there will uh, often be a rational explanation for what might appear to be contradictory. Uh, but I can uh, assure members that as part of our ongoing review of uh, the regulations uh, and rules in place, we will consider whether any changes uh, should or could be made to address such issues. Uh, more fundamentally, though, we will publish two pieces of work next week to coincide with the outcome of the review that will look ahead hopefully not too far ahead, uh, to the restoration of a much greater degree of normality. Uh, this work will be of interest to everyone, but it will have particular interest for the businesses and sectors, including much of our arts and culture sector, for example, that still face the greatest uncertainty about what the future looks like. So firstly, we will publish a paper setting out what we hope life will look like beyond level zero as we get to the point where we can lift all or at least virtually all of the remaining restrictions. This is important because while we have had to pause the, road, the route map, we do still, and I want to emphasise this point, we do still hope that vaccination will allow us over this summer to move beyond level zero and back to a much greater degree of normality. And secondly, related to the first, we will also publish the outcome of our review of physical distancing. Now, given the uncertainties of the current situation, in particular the greater transmissibility of the Delta variant, we have taken a bit longer to consider this than we had originally planned. However, I know how important this is for many businesses, in hospitality certainly, but also for theatres and cinemas and the arts more generally, as they all consider how they can operate sustainably over the medium to long term. So in summary next week, we will in all probability, although this has to be confirmed after our full review, uh, pause the further easing of restrictions while we press ahead as fast as possible with vaccination and in particular with double doses of vaccination. Uh, but we will also look ahead in more detail to what we still hope will be possible later in the summer. Um, I know the current situation is difficult and frustrating for everyone. We all want to see the back of all restrictions as soon as possible. However, while this setback is not easy and it's not welcome for anyone, it is worth remembering that we are living under far fewer restrictions now than was the case just a few weeks ago. The current situation is not what any of us want, but equally, the current situation is not uh, lockdown as experienced at earlier phases in the pandemic. And vaccination is, with every day that passes, quite literally helping us change the game. On that point, as well as doing all we can as quickly as we can to fully vaccinate the adult population, we are also making preparations for
for the possible vaccination of 12 to 17-year-olds, should the advice we get from the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation recommend that. Uh, I can tell the Chamber that we are also expecting advice from the JCVI in the coming weeks about whether or not booster vaccinations will be needed during this autumn. So plans are also underway to deliver these if necessary. Uh, the Government has an obligation, one we take very seriously, to ensure that the vaccination programme is delivered as quickly and as fully as possible. And I give an assurance that we will continue to work with health boards and others to meet that obligation. And despite the difficulties of the current situation, it is vaccination that still offers us real hope for the weeks and months ahead. Getting people vaccinated is first and foremost the responsibility of government. However, it is also one of the ways in which we can all play a part. So I'll end uh, today by highlighting again the three key things that we all need to do to help keep us on the right track overall as we emerge from the pandemic. The first of these is vaccination. Please make sure that you get vaccinated when you're invited to do so and please make sure you attend for both doses. All of the evidence tells us that that is absolutely crucial. The post of First Minister must be a lonely one. If Nicola Sturgeon announces the latest measures dealing with the global pandemic to journalists in a press briefing at St Andrew's House, MSPs mourn and say she should let them question and challenge her in the chamber instead. If she makes a statement in the chamber, journalists have a jab at her saying they should be getting the chance to scrutinise. Towards the end of the week, the First Minister came under further pressure, this time stemming from a report by Audit Scotland. That body says the Scottish Government just wasn't ready to deal with the pandemic. Not least, it failed to stock, deliver and provide appropriate levels of PPE kit to help safeguard health and care staff. Let's get into the heart of the Scottish Parliament and go into the Chamber for questions to the First Minister. We begin with Scottish Conservative leader Douglas Ross. He raises concerns about what he terms Scotland's drug deaths crisis. This afternoon, the Scottish Parliament will debate the next steps to tackle Scotland's drug death crisis. So can I start by asking the First Minister, does she accept that in Scotland today, people are still being denied access to rehab and her government's addiction treatment system is fundamentally broken? First Minister. Uh, I do accept that we are not yet uh, at the place we want to be in terms of drug treatment and services generally, um, and indeed in terms of uh, drug rehabilitation services in particular. And of course, the uh, Minister for Drugs Policy, Angela Constance, will set out uh, the progress we have made, the funding we are committed and the steps that we are taking in order to address that. Uh, there are a few things uh, that the government is more serious about uh, doing. We are keen and open to work across the chamber in so far as that is possible. I have been open um, about the fact that I don't think, uh, notwithstanding our efforts and our determination uh, in this area of policy that we've not yet uh, brought forward uh, a package of policies that are sufficient to tackle the severity of the challenge we face. And uh, I don't shy away from that, uh, but we are determined, and I know Angela Constance is determined and working hard to make sure that we do uh, just that. Douglas Ross. So I think the First Minister did accept that her government's strategy towards this is funda fundamentally broken and I look forward to hearing more about what the government are going to bring forward later this afternoon because the new standards that Angela Constance has already set out it will be an important move in the right direction. But they're not game-changing. They're the basics. They are the very least that government should do. People on the front line in the hardest-hit communities have been here before. 
They're hearing the same promises and warm words, but at the same time, they see their families, their friends or their neighbours dying from drug abuse. And all they hear is that by next spring, this government might manage to meet the bare minimum of expectations that people who need treatment actually get it. But without teeth, these new standards won't make a dent on the crisis. Unless we give them legal basis, they are effectively, effectively optional and can be overlooked. Our solution, backed by frontline campaigners, can we have is a, a right to recovery please? bill. Give people a right in law to the treatment they need. So is the First Minister content to stop at the basics, or will she back our proposal and give people the power to get their lives back on track? First Minister. So... I'm going to try and, uh, as briefly as I can, presiding officer, uh, address and engage with these points in, in substance because I think they are important. I, I would ask that Douglas Ross does similar. I mean, repeatedly he stands up here and he puts words into my mouth that I haven't said. And that's OK for politics, but if we're genuinely, as I sincerely am, trying to find consensus on uh, matters of, of seriousness such as this, then I do think all of us have a duty to try to put some of the politics uh, to one side. Um, there are people working across the country uh, delivering, uh, I think, excellent services for people with uh, problems of drug misuse, uh, people at grassroots. I see that in my own constituency. That's why I don't think it is fair for me to say that the system is broken, because that does a disservice to the work they are doing. But that is not me denying that the government has much, much more to do, and that we... Uh, often in the past, uh, and this is where I'm being really frank, our uh, response hasn't matched the response of those at the grassroots. So I'm, I'm trying genuinely to engage in this. And in that spirit, uh, the Conservatives raised, I understand Hubs of Youth have met with Annie Wells on this matter just a couple of weeks ago, have raised uh, the Right to Recovery Bill. I think I said at the outset of this term of Parliament that we would look in detail at that. Uh, we are doing that. Many of the, as I understand, the key strands of what would be in a Right to Recovery Bill um, are all things that are being taken forward out of the recommendations of the Residential Rehabilitation Working Group, and we can get into that in some more detail. Uh, I, my mind is not closed to statutory underpinning. What I think we have to be cautious about, though, is waiting for the time it takes to pass legislation before getting on with this work. So uh, there is, in each of the strands of what would be in a bill, there is work already underway. And what I want to see is us take that forward as quickly as possible. That doesn't rule out statutory underpinning, but we all know how long it takes, rightly, for good reason, to take legislation through this Parliament. So let's, for goodness sake, uh, not put other things on hold uh, while we talk about legislation. So I am serious about wanting to engage in good faith across the Chamber, and I hope others will join us in exactly that. The First Minister has now accused me twice this week of putting words in her mouth. Well, well, let, let, let me just be clear, because the official report is accurate. When on, on, well, on Tuesday, I was quoting her national clinical lead uh, and asking her if she agreed with it. And today, I was quoting back that the First Minister uh, had accepted that the system is broken. And that's why we are dealing with the case in front of us today. And the system is broken because, if I can, presiding officer, I want to, to use a case, and I'm keeping this man's identity anonymous, but I will provide the First Minister that she will personally intervene with his details through the charity Fever Scotland who are acting on his behalf. But this man was part of the Scottish Government's own independent care review. He was abused as a child and still suffers from PTSD. He's been in the system in Glasgow for four years without a care plan. He's been trying to get into rehab for two years 
but keeps hearing he is, and I quote, not appropriate for rehab. This man is at death's door. Today he's having a mental health assessment, just another hoop he has to jump through because he wants to get better. His only hope, it seems, is private rehab because of a charity's generosity. This individual case is shocking, but it's been repeated all over our country. This government has been in power for 14 years. How much longer do we have to wait for real action that is needed to tackle this crisis? First Minister. So, on the individual cases, Douglas Ross fairly said, I, I don't know all of the details of that, and it's rightly uh, confidential as we debate these things in Parliament. Of course, I will look at the detail of that if it can be passed to me. Uh, what I would say is, and I, I hope people would accept this, it is not for me as a, a politician uh, with no clinical qualifications or expertise to decide whether an individual is, to use the term that was used, appropriate for rehabilitation. Uh, not everybody, uh, I think we all accept this, uh, is appropriate, and that's perhaps not the best way of putting it. Not everybody is deemed to uh, benefit from re residential rehabilitation. What I am very clear about is that where the judgment of those uh, who do have the expertise is that somebody should have residential rehabilitation and will benefit from that, then they should get that. That is why, for example, we are significantly increasing the investment uh, for residential rehabilitation, and that will be part of what the Drugs uh, Minister sets out this afternoon. She has already uh, spoken about this. Um, if people are expecting me to stand, and I know sometimes this is perhaps a, an unorthodox way of, of doing politics, but if people want me to stand here and, and defend everything uh, that we have not got right in the past, I'm not going to do that. I think we it have failed in aspects of drugs policy and I am determined to get it right. Um, I'm not going to describe a system as broken uh, completely because I think that does a disservice to the many people across the country um, who are delivering services for people in need. Uh, but I do accept that uh, the government's response hasn't always matched that and that's what we've got to get right. We have to provide the funding, we have to provide the right approaches and that is what there is an absolute determination and uh, many different strands of work now underway to achieve. This is difficult work. Uh, there are no easy solutions. I think we all accept that. Uh, change will not be delivered overnight, uh, but we are determined to make the change that is required. Uh, that's why Angela Constance uh, is the, the Drugs Policy Minister. She reports directly to me. This is uh, one of the key priorities of government over the next period, and we are absolutely determined to make the change that people deserve to see. Douglas Ross. I'll ensure the First Minister has details of this case this afternoon, uh, because we do have to tackle this issue now. Scotland's drug deaths are the highest in Europe, and they're only going to get worse in the next few years if nothing is done. And the First Minister outlined that we can't be uh, overly cautious or wait uh, too long to pass legislation. And I agree, because we've seen, while facing this COVID crisis over the last year and a bit, this Parliament has been able to act and pass legislation at record speed. Yeah. We need the exact same urgency to deal with Scotland's drug death crisis. So my party will publish our proposals for a right to recovery bill before this parliament rises for recess next week. Therefore, can I ask the First Minister if she'll agree with me, addiction campaigners like Favour Scotland and those on the front line, to back our bill to give everyone a legal right to recovery? First Minister. I, I, have, I have said previously and I have uh, repeated today, at least I have given a strong indication, I am happy to say it more expressly, uh, I will look with an open mind at any proposals that are brought forward, including proposals 
for legislation. Douglas Ross uh, has said he hasn't yet published uh, the draft bill. When that draft bill is published, uh, we will look at that. If uh, the view was across this chamber that there was sufficient consensus to bring legislation forward quickly uh, and put it through uh, in an accelerated timescale, we will look at that as well. But we all know, and, and often this is for good reason, uh, even when there is consensus on the principle of legislation, often there is not sufficient consensus on the detail uh, to do that. So it's important that we look at these things uh, closely. Uh, I am committed to doing that. But whatever route we take on legislation, what I will not do is, is hang back on the work that we have underway uh, now. Uh, there is uh, many strands of that work that the Drugs Policy Minister will set out uh, and give an update to Parliament on this afternoon. Uh, it covers residential rehabilitation, uh, which is the main thing the Conservatives have, have pushed, which is uh, reasonable, but there are many other aspects to this as well. It's about the, the quality of community services. It is about access to same-day treatment, which is why the standards that Douglas Ross alluded to, I think, in his first question, are so important. So there's a range of things that we have to do and have to get right. It, it may be that legislation has a part to play there. I am open-minded to that, but we've got to get on with this work for the reasons that I think uh, have rightly been set out. To Labour leader Anasawa, and he picks up on that Audit Scotland report claiming a lack of vital PPE supplies for health and care workers across the country. Of the report published today by Audit Scotland lays out the truth about PPE provision during the pandemic. It confirms that the Scottish Government was not prepared. I accept the specific challenges posed by COVID-19 may have been unique, but a major pandemic was not unexpected. There were three planning exercises, Silver Swan in 2015, Cygnus in 2016 and Iris in 2018. All three made recommendations about PPE. All three were ignored. When COVID struck, that meant we did not have adequate supplies and struggled to cope, particularly in the early stages. Why didn't the First Minister and the Scottish Government act on those three reports? First Minister. Uh, we acted on all of these reports, but I've said before and I will say again, whether it's on PPE, the response to previous exercises, or indeed many other aspects of the pandemic, this Government in common with governments, no doubt, all over the world, did not get everything right. And we have lessons to learn. And I, uh, as I've said many times before, I do not shy away from that. Uh, one of the uh, legitimate criticisms, and I'm sure there will be more scrutiny of this in the, the months uh, to come, is that I think uh, many of us, particularly Western governments, uh, rested too much of our planning and preparedness uh, on thinking that a pandemic would be a flu pandemic. And uh, that is relevant, as I think is reflected in the Audit Scotland report and the remarks I heard from the Auditor General on radio this morning, reflected in some of our preparations around PPE. So I, I recognise that. But, and anybody who reads the Audit Scotland report and who listened to the Auditor General this morning uh, would also have heard something else. And I'll, I'll just quote the Auditor General. Our report found that the Scottish Government and the NHS worked well in extremely challenging circumstances to set up new arrangements for the supply and distribution of PPE across the country. At no point uh, did we not have PPE. At no point did we run out of PPE. Central stocks uh, at times were very low, as they would have been in many countries, given the intense global demand. Uh, but in terms of supply, uh, we worked hard, again reflected in this report, to make sure, uh, often on same-day turnaround, uh, that health boards across the country had supplies of PPE. And, of course, there's a lot of learning already been done, and we now have domestic supply chains for PPE that uh, are much better than before the pandemic. Before the pandemic, around about 100% of all of our PPE was imported. Now, the majority of it is actually manufactured here 
here in Scotland. So yes, lessons to learn, uh, but I want to pay tribute uh, to everybody in National Services Scotland and in health boards across the country who worked so hard to make sure that at no point Scotland ran out of PPE. Anna Sarwa. First Minister, you may not have run out of PPE on your spreadsheet, but it ran out in hospitals and our care settings. Ask the healthcare workers and they'll tell you the truth. Because today's Audit Scotland report confirms that central stocks of PPE were so low at points they could have run out within eight hours. In April last year, ICU doctors raised the alarm that they were having to reuse visors. There were out-of-date PPE being used with fake labels being put on top of the expiry dates in Glasgow and Lanarkshire. And over 1,000 social care staff were forced to organise a petition to get PPE in their workplace. Across Scotland, we heard the same horrifying story and saw tragic images. A lack of PPE had consequences and devastating ones. It cost lives. In Scotland, a sixth of all COVID cases admitted to hospital during the first wave were healthcare workers or members of their household. In total, 21 healthcare staff and 28 social care workers have tragically lost their lives to COVID-19 in Scotland. Does the First Minister accept that is partly the consequence of her government ignoring its own warnings and not being prepared? First Minister. No, I, I don't uh, think that is the case, although there is uh, much scrutiny still uh, to come around uh, the government's handling of, of this, and I, I welcome that and think that is important. Um, I pay tribute to everybody who worked uh, in our NHS uh, in the early days of this pandemic and uh, up until today, people who are still working hard in the face of this pandemic. But in terms of whether or not Scotland uh, ran out, uh, you know, to, to somebody working in the front line of our health service, I accept this sounds like a bit of an arid political debate. But if, if Anna Sarwar uh, doesn't want to take my word for just a simple statement of fact, then again, I will quote the Auditor General uh, on radio this morning. People worked really hard to ensure we did not uh, run out. Now, Supply uh, was low uh, at times. I, I accept that. I know about that. I was uh, centrally involved in our response uh, at that time. But when the Audit Scotland report says that stocks were uh, low, uh, th there's two other points that uh, have to be made. Uh, firstly, that is a reference to centrally held stocks. Uh, as the report recognises, there were additional stocks held at that time in uh, local health board uh, areas. Um, and secondly, the most fundamentally important point, and again, I'm quoting here directly from the Audit Scotland report, uh, supplies did not run out. Uh, there were always, and this is uh, from the report, there were always incoming orders to help manage supply with stock arriving and being shipped out to boards uh, on the same day at some points. Now, that is down to the work of National Services Scotland and people around the country. On the point about... Uh, expiry dates. Uh, Richard Leonard, when he uh, was in Anna Sarwar's place, uh, used to raise this as well. Uh, at the heart of Anna Sarwar's argument here, and it's not an illegitimate argument, is that we should have bigger stockpiles. Uh, but the stockpiles we did have, because uh, material has been in stockpile for a while, when you take it out of the stockpile, you often have to revalidate it because it will have passed an expiry date. Um, Richard Leonard uh, described that as palming off out-of-date PPE. So that is basically what happens when you have a, a stockpile. But we had arrangements to make sure 
that PPE was available. So we will continue to take steps. Uh, we have made significant changes to the supply chain, to the distribution routes. One final point, presiding officer. Mutual aid uh, arrangements were in place uh, across the UK. Um, at no point did Scotland have to make use uh, of those mutual aid arrangements, but we did provide mutual aid requests to both England uh, and uh, to Wales. But we didn't have to ask anybody else for mutual aid because we did not run out of PPE. Anna Sarwar. I'm not sure that's something to applaud. I don't deny. I don't, de I don't deny. I don't, I don't deny. Uh, the Deputy First Minister didn't run out. I don't deny that the government worked hard. But I'll take the word of the ICU doctors. I'll take the word of the GPs who sent the pictures of the out-of-date PPE. I'll take the word of the 1,000-plus care worker staff who had to sign a petition to demand this government gave them PPE. That's whose word I'll take. And I accept that the ministers had to make tough decisions. But the hardest decision was for those who risked exposing the themselves to the virus and possibly taking it home to their family in order to care for others. They're the ones that we should be thinking about today. The law requires that workplace-related deaths are reported for investigation. However, it is left to the employer to determine whether, and I quote, there is reasonable evidence that a work-related exposure is likely to be the cause of disease. We have all applauded NHS and care workers on the front line, and we rightly call them heroes. Some of our heroes have tragically died. Their families deserve answers. Currently, only 27 deaths of workers across all sectors are being investigated by the Procurator Fiscal. But we know that 49 health and social care workers have lost their lives to COVID. All of those deaths should be referred to the Crown Office for a full and proper investigation to establish if their death was linked to the workplace. Can the First Minister give a commitment today that that will happen? First Minister. I, I want to make sure that every relevant aspect of the handling of this pandemic, whether in general terms or as it affected individuals, is properly and robustly scrutinised. Um, and I not just welcome that, I think that is really important. In terms of prosecutions, um, yeah, I would ask members to cast their minds back over the past few months in completely different contexts and think about how often we've heard uh, allegations, uh, misguided allegations, uh, about governments trying to politicise the role of prosecutors. Prosecutors act entirely independently, um, and that is right and proper. Um, and any politician uh, suggesting otherwise, um, I think, should, should think about that. These are really important matters. Uh, Anna Sarwar said today we should be thinking of those in the front line of our health service. I, I agree with that, but there's not a single day that I don't think about those working hard on the front line of our health service. Uh, he mentioned care homes. One of the other things narrated in the Audit Scotland report is that pre-pandemic, under all administrations uh, in the lifetime of this parliament, uh, the government through National Services Scotland did not supply PPE to the care home sector or indeed to primary care. Uh, they used to uh, get it directly from private suppliers. One of the changes we made uh, was to uh, directly supply the care home sector from the National Health Service. So these are the changes we made. Uh, there are undoubtedly lessons to learn, but it is uh, not wrong in my view uh, to say that we did not run out uh, and it is not wrong to say that that was a good thing in the, the teeth of a global pandemic uh, when competition for supplies of PPE was so intense. Uh, so we now have uh, significantly uh, higher stocks of PPE. Hopefully we won't need the same volumes 
in future. Uh, but at every step of the way, we have worked hard, which is reflected in the Audit Scotland uh, report, reflected by the Auditor-General, to make sure that our staff had PPE, and we will continue to do that each and every day. The co-leader of the Greens, Patrick Harvey, claims the Scottish Government is failing to live up to its rhetoric about world-beating targets. Nicola Sturgeon says she needs to accelerate progress on those plans. During the election, the First Minister had to explain why her government had missed two climate targets in a row. This week, a third annual climate target came and went, and Scotland is falling even further behind. On home energy use, transport, farming and land use, the government is failing to live up to the rhetoric about world-leading targets. Year after year, the Greens propose stronger action and year after year we're told, don't worry, we have a new climate plan. Well, now with a third year of missed targets, the only difference is that the government has had to admit just months after publishing their new plan that it too needs to be replaced. This is not the bold leadership that's needed. What does the First Minister think her government is doing wrong? First Minister. Um, can I just make sure we're being factually accurate in a part of this? These figures this week, which I'm going to address centrally in a second, are for 2019. They predate the updated climate change plan, so they take no account of the changes that were in that plan. And I think it's just important to be accurate about that. What are we doing wrong? I don't think for Scotland, and Scotland, of course, is ahead of most other countries in the world. I don't think it's about what we're doing wrong. I think on climate change, none of us are yet doing enough right to get to the point we need to get to. We need all of us to accelerate our progress. In terms of the, the missed target, yet we of course want to hit those targets and we've got more to do to get there. But we shouldn't overlook the scale of our progress. Emissions in Scotland uh, in the report this week uh, are down by 51.5%. The target was 55%, but down by 51.5%. That means uh, that we are more than halfway to net zero. We are further ahead than the rest of the UK and further ahead than most other countries across the world. Uh, but there's more to do. We will uh, publish a catch-up to show uh, not just what we're doing through the, the, the plan, but how we're going to accelerate to catch up. Uh, we see, for example, transport emissions are, are actually down year on year, but there's more to do there. So uh, all of us across the world have got to live up to this. Uh, Scotland, like other countries, needs to accelerate progress. But Scotland is already further ahead than most other countries. And I want us to make sure not just that we maintain that position, but that we get even further ahead so that we're leading more by example. Patrick Harvey. See, I'm not so fussed about being further ahead of the UK because I don't think that would be any great boast. I want us to be further ahead than our own targets, say, we should be. Let's take farming and, and land use uh, as just one example. I think Scottish farmers are facing a perfect storm at the moment. They have a need to make even bigger emission cuts to make up for the wasted years. They have a need to adapt to a changing climate and protect wildlife. And the UK Climate Change Committee this week say that both the Scottish and UK governments are failing on that agenda. And now they face an Australian trade deal that threatens to flood the country with cheap imports. We need to radically reform agricultural subsidies to meet these challenges, but the Scottish Government currently intends to put this off until 2024. Does the First Minister accept that this is simply too late, not just for the next half dozen climate targets, but for the rural communities that need to see change if they're going to have a sustainable future? 
First Minister. Um, yes, I, I do think uh, how we use land uh, is a really important uh, part of how we meet uh, our targets for the future. Um, uh, and we need to support our farming community, not undermine our farming community, as has uh, been done uh, by the UK Government right now in, in trade deals, uh, in order to make the changes uh, that allow them to do that. And I know there is a great appetite and willingness across the farming sector to do that and we will continue to support them uh, through uh, funding mechanisms but through other ways as well in order to do that. Of course the figures uh, this uh, week included a major technical change to the reporting of our emissions from peatlands for example uh, which is part of uh, the, the report that was, was published but uh, agriculture is a central part of this. We can't and I don't, I'm not suggesting Patrick Harvey is saying we can. We can't just uh, you know, wish all of these changes uh, into being. There is hard work underway and hard work to be done to bring them about. I'm not simply comparing us to the rest of the UK. I want us uh, to lead by example. We are ahead of most other countries in the world. Is it going far enough, fast enough? Uh, no. But I, I do think it is important to try to motivate us all to go further, that we don't lose sight of the significant progress we've already made. One of the reasons um, I'm keen, uh, I hope, that my party can uh, reach a cooperation agreement with Patrick Harvey's party is I do think it's important that we are all challenged to go further and faster on this. So uh, that determination is there and I'm sure it is shared across this chamber. So let's uh, celebrate the progress we have made but use it to motivate all of us to go further because that's what we owe to generations that will come after us. You're listening to The Week in Hollywood. I'm Charles Fletcher, and still to come in this half hour, I'll bring you in-depth coverage of questions to the First Minister from members across the chamber. In this segment, the First Minister expresses her grave concerns about the Australian trade deal being cheered by the UK government. Nicola Sturgeon is demanding it come under scrutiny by the Scottish Parliament rather than being rubber-stamped by the Commons. So to continuing coverage then of FMQs, we join Presiding Officer Alison Johnson. Question number four, Michelle Thompson. To ask the First Minister what engagement the Scottish Government has had with the UK Government on business support in light of the rise of the Delta variant. First Minister. Uh, we recognise uh, that deviating from a route map impacts on businesses. We funded additional financial support to businesses in areas where it has been necessary to retain restrictions for an additional period. We also continue to emphasise to the UK Government the need for uh, additional funding to be made available for businesses. Um, I think the situation exemplifies why it is so important that we have the requisite fiscal powers here to respond to the pandemic and increasingly to recovery from the pandemic. Uh, the furlough scheme also continues to be hugely important to Scottish businesses and workers and we again call on the UK Government to maintain this support for lo as long as it is required. Michelle Thompson. I thank the First Minister for that response and certainly uh, agree with her comments about the furlough scheme with 3.4 million people still in furlough and 553,000 fewer people in payroll employment. It of course would be utterly unthinkable for the Tories to cut support prematurely. Does the FM agree with the Scottish Licensed Trade Association who along with other businesses and trade unions have called for, and I quote, the extension to the current support schemes available, such as furlough, VAT reduction and the deferral of loan repayments. First Minister. 
Yes, I do, and I, I thank Michelle Thompson for raising uh, points that are important to businesses across the country. I think it is vital uh, that furlough is extended for as long as possible. Uh, I think the extension of uh, VAT reduction uh, is important too, and the deferral of, of loan repayments. There will be many uh, companies that have taken advantage of the loans that have been made available, and I welcome the fact the loans were made available, uh, but there now needs to be consideration given uh, to how and when, and in some respects, if these uh, loans should be repaid by businesses that need to get back to normal and get back to a position of sustainability. I recognise the responsibility on the shoulders of the Scottish Government to do as much as we can, but many of these levers lie in the hands of the UK Government and it's important that they use them properly to support business as well. Question number five, Russell Finlay. To ask the First Minister whether the Scottish Government will provide an update on the commitment to hold an inquiry into the malicious prosecutions concerning Rangers Football Club. First Minister. Uh, both the Lord Advocate and uh, the then Minister for Parliamentary Business made clear to Parliament on the 10th of February this year that the Scottish Government uh, supports uh, both parliamentary and wider public accountability in these cases. Uh, in February, indeed, the Parliament passed a motion supporting a judge-led inquiry, uh, which the Government uh, supports and is committed to. Of course, uh, this can only happen when related legal proceedings are completed. There are currently uh, legal proceedings that remain live in relation to these cases. However, there will be an inquiry once these proceedings have uh, concluded. Russell Finlay. Uh, we don't yet know how much these malicious prosecutions will end up costing taxpayers. The self-inflicted damage to the Crown Office's reputation is unquantifiable. Now, the SNP have agreed to most of the Scottish Conservative demands in relation to this inquiry, but one big question remains unanswered. And that is, will the judge leading the inquiry be from Outwith, Scotland? And it's a yes or no question. First Minister. Uh, yes, I think there is an argument for that. But these decisions have got to be taken in the, the proper way, uh, in the, the proper uh, time. Um, we are committed uh, to this. Of course, the Crown Office in Prosecution Matters uh, acts entirely independently uh, of ministers. It's important that there is a remit for this inquiry uh, and that it is led by a judge that commands confidence. Uh, that's in the interest of everyone. Um, and uh, we will take these decisions uh, once the proceedings uh, have concluded. Question number six, Carol Mocken. To ask the First Minister what action the Scottish Government is taking in response to reports that some patients are having to wait over three years to be discharged from psychiatric hospitals. First Minister. Uh, no one wants people to be receiving care in psychiatric hospitals for any longer than is deemed clinically necessary in every individual case. Uh, where there are delays in discharge, that can be very challenging for individuals. Uh, but it is the case that significant packages of care often need to be linked to for example, specialist accommodation, which sometimes has to be commissioned, specially designed or even purpose-built, and that can take uh, a considerable time to be put in place while those concerned continue to receive appropriate care in a hospital setting. To help address this issue, uh, in February this year, the then Cabinet Secretary for Health announced a £20 million community living change fund, which uh, would be allocated to integration authorities via NHS boards. The fund has been made available to help partnerships drive further service redesign uh, to adopt a preventative and anticipatory approach to supporting people with very complex needs that can avoid the need for institutional care in future. Carol Mocken. Thank you for the answer. <clears throat> 
but the figures reported were stark and unacceptable, as well as delayed discharges. There are serious issues with people only being offered out-of-area placements for care. In their legislation for a national care service, will the First Minister commit to introducing a statutory duty on integration joint boards to provide care in the community for people leaving psychiatric hospitals, rather than leaving people in limbo for years and years, as, as has been reported this week? First Minister. Um, obviously, the whole Parliament has to uh, debate the detail of the legislation to establish the National Care Service, but you know, I, I think in principle that is an important part. No, nobody, certainly I do not disagree with how important it is to make sure that people with complex needs have the right care in the community and, and not have to be in institutional care when that is not uh, necessary or appropriate. Uh, the challenge here, as I try to set out in my original answer, is often it is the complexity of the needs of individuals that means it takes time to ensure that the right provision is available in the community. And sometimes that can mean uh, accommodation that has to be specially designed or commissioned or even purpose built. Uh, so obviously there is a real obligation on everybody involved uh, to speed up uh, this process as much as possible. But what is really important is that the right provision is in place given the complexity of the needs that individuals have. Thank you. We move to supplementary questions. I call Natalie Don to be followed by Liam Kerr. Thanks, President Officer. I welcome yesterday's announcement that not only will dental charges be removed for care experienced young people as set out in the SNP manifesto, but that this has also been extended to all 16 to 25 year olds. Can the First Minister tell us how this will benefit young people and what plans she has for the further expansion? First Minister. Um, I think this is a really important uh, commitment and having committed uh, to removing dental charges uh, as the first step in our commitment to remove dental charges for everyone, uh, to remove those for care experienced young people under the age of 26, uh, when we have looked at this, we have decided actually we should have our first step removing charges for all young people uh, under uh, the age of 26. So I think this is a, a really important step and one that I, I was delighted we could announce this week. Uh, approximately 600,000 uh, people will benefit from that. Uh, um, and, uh, of course, as I say, our plans are to remove dental charges completely uh, because for some people they can be a barrier to getting the treatment they need uh, and that can lead for some people uh, to them needing emergency treatment. So removing that barrier, I think, helps individuals, but I think it also helps the NHS make sure that people get the treatment they need as early as possible in the setting that is most appropriate for them. Liam Kerr to be followed by Paul Sweeney. Thank you, Presiding Officer. First Minister, since March, conductors and ticket examiners at ScotRail have been taking strike action. It's believed this will go on into the summer. This has led to a huge reduction in services on Sundays, including for a number of key workers who've contacted me to tell me there are only limited bus services to various hospitals around Scotland. So what is the First Minister's view on these strikes, and what is the Scottish Government doing to bring this action to a close and end the travel disruption for millions of passengers? First Minister. Um, I don't want to see strike action being taken anywhere um, across the country. Uh, I don't want to see strike action being taken on our rail services um, either. Um, it's really important that the employer um, tries to uh, resolve this as, as quickly as possible. Um, collective bargaining rests with the operator and with the trade unions uh, concerned. I know though, that the Transport Minister has agreed to meet with trade union representatives later this month to discuss their concerns in more detail. Um, and I hope we will see a resolution to this uh, as quickly as possible. Possible. Of course, over uh, the months to come, we will be doing the work uh, to take uh, ScotRail into public ownership, which I think will bring uh, a range of different benefits to people across the country. Paul Sweeney to be followed by Claire Adamson. 
The First Minister may be aware of reports that Glasgow City Council intend to extend the ban on asylum seekers coming into Glasgow as a result of the constraints of accommodation. We all know the inadequacies of the Home Office policy and their privatised service, but surely this is tantamount to an abdication of responsibility by us as Scots and Glaswegians to some of the most vulnerable people in the world, and we should seek to lift that ban as quickly as possible and also explore every possible opportunity to improve quality of life for the 5,000 or so asylum seekers in Glasgow, such as extending concessionary travel to them at free of charge. First Minister. So, what I would say to, to Paul Sweeney, um, I think one of the last organisations in this country, uh, and I say this uh, under the, the current political uh, leadership of Glasgow City Council, but also, to be fair, under the last Labour leadership of Glasgow City Council, Glasgow City Council is probably the last organisation that deserves to be criticised uh, for how asylum seekers are treated. It has been one of the few areas that has welcomed asylum seekers, done everything it can to support them. There is an issue, though, about the responsibility um, of having asylum seekers when the Home Office and the UK Government are refusing to put in place adequate uh, provision for accommodation. And these are difficult issues, but I do think the target of our criticism, and I suspect Paul Sweeney and I uh, agree more than we disagree on this issue, the target of criticism um, and the target for demands for change should be to the UK Government, not to Glasgow City Council. I want to see asylum seekers uh, welcomed here. I want to see us uh, make sure that we have provision for asylum seekers that has dignity and support at heart um, and that could not be further removed uh, from the very punitive and heartless approach of the Home Office. And I would genuinely say to Labour uh, that we should be united in this, not seeking to blame Glasgow City Council for a problem that is not of its making. Claire Adamson, to be followed by Alexander Stewart. Thank you, Presiding Officer. First Minister, I'm sure that you and the whole Chamber will join me in sending sincerest condolences to the friends and family of 13-year-old Aidan Rooney and to the wider St Aidan's High School community in Wishaw. Aidan died tragically after getting dif into difficulty in the River Clyde in what was sadly drowning prevention week. As we approach the school holidays, can I ask the First Minister what the Scottish Government is doing to promote accident prevention messaging, particularly water safety, to our young people and families. First Minister. Uh, can I extend uh, my deepest and sincere condolences to Aidan's family? Uh, Aidan, of course, the young boy who so tragically lost his life in the Clyde last week. I, I cannot even begin to understand uh, the impact on his family, on his friends and on the wider community. So while incidents such as these are thankfully rare, each and every drowning is one too many, and they demonstrate the vital role of initiatives such as Drowning Prevention Week due to run from this Saturday. Um, I support the work of the Royal Life Saving Society and Water Safety Scotland, uh, who are working hard to prevent uh, such tragic incidents. We will do everything we can to support the work they do uh, and I would encourage everyone to use the, the water uh, safety resources that are freely available to ensure that everyone can enjoy water safely over the summer months but for now I'm sure the thoughts of all of us uh, are with Aidan's family. Alexander Stewart to be followed by Michael Mara. Thank you presiding officer. First Minister the Royal College of Psychiatrists have released figures showing that referrals for young children and young people with eating disorders have soared to crisis levels during lockdown. Constituents in my region have been in touch to say that virtual appointments, loss of support structure, staff shortages and a less action within the community services has fuelled this crisis. What action can the Scottish Government put in place to improve services to ensure that face-to-face -face consultations 
are returned to as soon as is practically possible. First Minister. Well, I think everybody uh, understands that eating disorders have a devastating impact on individuals, but also their families, um, and rapid intervention is essential uh, and uh, that uh, must be available. Uh, we published the National Review of Eating Disorder Services in uh, March uh, and will announce further steps by the end of June. Uh, we'll also be establishing an, uh, an implementation group to ensure uh, that the recommendations in the review are taken forward uh, quickly. Intensive home treatment is a, an evidence-based intervention for treating uh, eating disorders and part of the work of the review group will be expanding these services across uh, Scotland. More generally, in terms of uh, mental health services, as uh, the Chamber knows, uh, work is ongoing uh, to extend the provision of community services, particularly uh, for children and adolescents. Michael Mara to be followed by Jim Fairley. Thank you, President Officer. Uh, evidence in today's Scotsman shows that young people judged to have failed a course are not having their grades submitted to the SQA. While non-presentation of candidates for exams is a feature of our system in normal years, this year it is a decision being taken after the result is known. Crucially, in this year, young people not presented to the SQA then lose their ability to appeal against how they are being judged. Does the First Minister believe that this is an acceptable practice, and will her government issue guidance against it ahead of the grade submission deadline next week? First Minister. Um, I am not aware of any evidence uh, that suggests this is being uh, used in a way this year that would uh, be less appropriate than last year. But if there is evidence that anybody wants to put forward, we will look at that as a matter of urgency. Um, and indeed, uh, the EIS, I know, has said, uh, and I'm quoting here, that it is not aware of this as an issue in schools. As Michael Mara rightly says, in any academic year, decisions will be made about whether it is right or not to put a, a young person forward uh, for a qualification in normal years for an exam, um, and that is a decision that should always be taken um, in line with the interests of the young person. So that will be happening in some cases uh, this year. If anybody has evidence that it is happening inappropriately, as I said, we will look at that as a matter of urgency. Jim Fairley to be followed by Liam MacArthur. Uh, thank you, Presiding Officer. NFU Scotland has said that the agreement in principle with Australia sets a dangerous precedent for future free trade agreements. It's a deal that's been done with no consultation, no consent and no parliamentary scrutiny. Does the First Minister agree that if the UK government is so confident about the benefits of the deal, it should be put to a vote rather than selling out Scotland's farmers and crofters just as they sold out the fishing communities? First Minister. Uh, yes, I, I do agree. I think the, the detail of this should uh, be published in full. Um, it should be put to a vote, and I would uh, suggest it should be put to a vote not just in the House of Commons, but a vote in this Parliament as well, so that we can represent the interests of the farming community across Scotland. I am deeply concerned about the implications of this trade deal and future trade deals on our farming sector in Scotland. Um, I I'd noted, as I'm sure others have done, uh, the words of the Australian Deputy Prime Minister uh, just last night, I think, uh, where he said, and I'm quoting, the big winners are Australian producers and Australian farmers, indeed Australia, full stop. Asked about Welsh, Scottish and Northern Irish beef producers, uh, he said, I'm not so worried about those. Now, I should say it's not his job to worry about Scottish uh, producers, but the fact he's not worried suggests that the UK government is not standing up for the, their interests in these talks either. Uh, so open this up to scrutiny and open it up to scrutiny in the National Parliament of Scotland as well. <laughs>